Well, Isaiah 40 is one of the great chapters of the Bible. If you haven't read Isaiah 40 uh, very much, or if you've never read it before, uh, if this was the first time to hear it with the bells uh, reading for us uh, this morning, uh, I, would, I would commend it to you as one to turn uh, to regularly, to put a bookmark there, to, to mark that as a place that you could return to. Of course, there's a danger with this chapter that uh, Steve Davidson, who teaches at McCormick Theological Seminary, uh, warns uh, would-be preachers and, and folks he warns preachers to avoid turning this chapter into a motivational speech. It has that feel to it as you get uh, through the chapter and you get to the very end there. Uh, he actually refers it to producing a homiletical version of I Believe I Can Fly. So if you've ever seen the old movie Space Jam uh, and you think about you know, this uplifting song, turning this chapter into this where we run out of the locker room and we conquer our athletic foe. And so he says, don't do that with this chapter. So today I'm going to heed Davidson's advice here, and I'm going to try not to turn it into too much of a motivational speech for us. But there is some great motivation here. Today's reading is addressed to a people in exile. It's a broken people. One commentator referred to this broken people with the word shattered. Just how shattered is recounted for us in Psalm 137. There the psalmist weeps. The psalmist is mocked, and amongst this mocking and jeering from Babylon, this psalmist hangs up their harp, their music is silenced, and instead they call for the most heinous kind of vengeance at the end of that particular psalm. At the risk of making a pun here, uh, this all looks, or this all points to what it means to be unsettled. This is an unsettled people. And the people's distress is not without good reason. Now, if you grew up in the, like me, you grew up in around television, uh, this is where a montage would come on the screen right now. So here's the montage from previous episodes, and of course there'd be a carefully placed uh, voiceover that would say something like this, previously on Fifth Gospel, and then we'd see clips from last week's episode. You'll recall that last week in chapter 39, Isaiah rebuked King Hezekiah for being foolish and short-sighted in his handling of that Babylonian envoy. Isaiah goes on to note this, says, Days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your ancestors have stored up until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left. Some of your own sons who are born to you shall be taken away. They shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And surprisingly, we learned last week that Hezekiah is rather indifferent to the prophet's message at that point. Of course, this would all happen after his lifetime, so not a problem here. Well, our reading this week is to a generation that isn't indifferent to the suffering of exile. They're living it. They have lived into that space. They are presently there. And from their vantage point of having been removed from their homes, they are disoriented and they've been displaced. For them, God is seemingly silent to their plight. And I imagine here that it's not just them that feel this way. Amidst the psychological trauma, emotional distress, and the physical toll of a pandemic that is global and which has claimed the lives of more than 500,000 Americans, our own countrymen, perhaps God is absent to us today. Perhaps we might feel that God does not see or hear our plight. 
And so we can imagine what it would be like to some extent for the people in this generation that Isaiah is speaking to. So what do you say to those people? What do you say to people who find themselves in that place? Well, certainly coming judgment and exile were the messages or the message of chapters 1 through 39. Of course, there's periodic glimpses throughout of God's grace. But chapter 40 here strikes a different note. It hits a different chord at this point. And it begins with what God wants to say to God's people both then as well as now. It's a word of consolation. We see the word at the beginning of chapter 40 is this, comfort, comfort. And not just comfort, but the promise of a coming exodus. We'll see that in verses 3 through 5 of chapter 40. How's the old adage go? This one's credited to Ben Franklin. Remember, he said, well done is better than well said. Well done is better than well said. In claims made here for the people who find themselves conquered and held by the Babylonian superpower, one wonders if God is even up to the challenge. These are great words. Comfort's a great word. Talking about a new exodus, that's a great word. But will action actually come? Will something actually be done? We could easily insert our own distressing challenges and moments here and ask the same question. Is God up to the challenge? And that's what Isaiah is going to draw on here as we look into our present reading. Now, some of our best theology, I think we have to admit, comes in kids' songs. If you didn't know that already, some of the best theology in the Christian faith, great reminders are there. In fact, there's an old story about Karl Barth, the great 20th century uh, theologian, uh, who was asked at one time to kind of summarize his entire theology down into one sentence. Could you, could you reduce that down to one sentence? And he said, well, I can think back to when I was a child, a song that I learned uh, at my mother's knee. Uh, it went something like this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Like I said, our theology, some of our great theology can be reduced down to children's songs. Well, there's a children's song that goes something like this. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. The song goes on to recount, if you read the lyrics to that particular song, uh, beyond that uh, chorus, it goes on to recount God's work in creation, making trees and elephants, mountains and skies. Clearly one who could create on that type of scale, let alone create anything at all, is indeed big, is indeed strong, and of course is mighty. It's not a direct quote of the prophet, but Isaiah would t will take a similar approach here when he addresses the question of whether or not God is up to the challenge now. Beginning in verse 12, the prophet employs God is so big imagery. In the early verses, Isaiah observes, and this is verses 12 through 14 of chapter 40 leading up to our text, uh, Isaiah observes that God is without compare. Even the nations are considered entirely small when set before their creator. You'll see that in verses 15 through 17. And Babylon here is no exception. You could add that superpower there, and they're not going to be an exception to that rule. They're still small. All of this, of course, leads to the question, then to whom will you liken God? That's what we hear in verse 18. Perhaps another God? Babylon had lots to offer. Perhaps their God Marduk would compare here and could be under consideration. Well, Isaiah will draw a strong divide here between the God of Israel 
and these foreign deities. And you'll see that in verses 19 through 20, again, leading up to our text. The idols that were created and manufactured is what he takes aim at here. Israel's God is creator. That's a significant difference from that which is manufactured, that which is created. And Isaiah's not alone in making this distinction or drawing this difference here or even naming the difference. The psalmist actually observes this in Psalm 96, in 96.5, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And so you see that distinction between what is created and the creator. Paul will use a similar argument or draw on the wealth of this particular argument when he makes his uh, statements in 1 Corinthians 8 about food sacrificed to idols. So if anyone is up to the challenge of consoling a broken people, a shattered people, and returning them home, it's going to be the God of Israel. Big, strong, and mighty. But how can we be sure? How, how can we really be sure? How do we really know that God is up to the challenge? Well, again, the prophet draws our attention to God's work in creation. Appealing to what God's people know, we see this frame for us at the outset of today's reading. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? And this all points to what has been disclosed to Israel and what each subsequent generation of the faithful have taught from that disclosure. We use words like revelation here or what is revealed. Words that we might be more familiar with might be the scripture. We take the scripture in the Bible, what has been revealed to God's people and how that's now been taught from generation to generation. That's what's been disclosed. That's how we can know what has been known or heard or said. And what is it that we read in those scriptures? Well, Isaiah is going to draw for us in summary version here in the next few verses of our text what those things are. One is this, God's power over creation. God sits above the circle of the earth, we see in verse 21. Protecting creation from the chaos beyond is the role that those ancient audiences would have understood by that, that God sits atop the dome of creation. Stretching out the heavens like a curtain, spreading them like a tent. Again, these acts of creation, these grand acts that God does. Second thing we see is God's power over rulers, and that's in uh, verse 23. God is more powerful than national leaders, bringing princes to naught and making rulers of the earth as nothing. And curiously here, the word nothing that we have translated is the same word that's translated void in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, that tohu. God's creative power is able to create and work in the void, in the emptiness. Not just bringing princes to nothing and emptiness, but God can then do a work in that void to create something new. The third thing we see here is God's power is seen in what I refer to here as God wind. All right, God wind, or you might say God breath. When God blows upon them, is how the text reads in verse 24, they wither, the tempest carries them off like stubble. And of course, this picture shows up earlier in the chapter of God's breath coming out and, and what is captured in that breath is, is destroyed or disintegrated in that. And we see that in verses 7 and 8. But the picture here is of a powerful, powerful blowing. It's God's power in breath and speech. And, and we know that 
God's breath and God's speech, God's spoken word in Genesis 1 brings about creation. So we're already familiar with that type of imagery for God. But you may not be as familiar with Exodus chapter 15, where Moses uh, talks about and recounts an event from the people's exodus from Egypt. There, Moses says this in verse 10 of that chapter, You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Again, God's breath which comes out and, and sets right, defeats uh, foreign powers, is powerful enough to save and pers- preserve God's people. In creation, in Exodus, the people have witnessed God's creative powers, what Isaiah is drawing on, what he's gathering up with all these texts. Creating and sustaining, naming and claiming a people of God's own, secure in who God is and what God is capable of. Still not sure? Well, God says this through the prophet Isaiah in verse 26. Look up to the heavens. Look up to the skies. Not one of the things, the stars, the constellations, not one of them are missing. So what makes you think that God would allow one of God's own people to go missing? There's a nod to an ancient promise here in that looking to the sky. It's a nod to a promise that that was made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, where God said, look toward heaven and count the stars. If you were able to count them. And then he said to to him, "So so shall your descendants be. If you're worried about how God was going to accomplish this, we look back and we see what God has already accomplished in creation, in Exodus. Of course, that all sounds rather straightforward. But if your life experience is anything like mine, you probably come to discover that when the big waves of life roll in, when those waves come in and they crash over you, those distressing moments that either submerge you beneath the surf and drag you on the ocean's floor, or they pull you out to sea, When those happen, when you find yourself in that predicament, we ask different questions. Our initial questions aren't about whether or not God is powerful enough. Sure, from an intellectual standpoint, we could say that you don't have to read far into Scripture to know that God is up to the challenge. Read Genesis 1 on that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God can do that. God can certainly handle the mess that I'm in. Isaiah would agree to that but then it happens, and you can fill in the blank there. What is it that happens that crushes you at that moment? Early in his devotions, John Dunn will write this, and I know that some of you are reading that as, as part of your Lenten practices this year. It's a, one that I've commended to our congregation to look at because it speaks so well uh, to the predicament we find ourselves in in this season. But Dunn early on will write this, I feel miserable. A minute ago I was well, and now I'm sick. And of course, we might expect this pastor, and that's John Dunn was a pastor, we might expect him to be a perfect example of grace and confidence under fire. But he's not. He's not. The devotions show us that. And like each of us, he's frail. And he prays for God's grace so that he can see God's sustaining work in the past with the hope that, and this is Dunn's words, that he might learn to call upon God's mercies now when I need you. When those distressing moments come, when we find ourselves broken and shattered by life, I find that people 
wonders something closer to what we hear in verse 27 of Isaiah's prophecy here. Is our way hidden from God? Is God withholding from us? God is powerful and capable. That much we can agree on, and that is made certain in verse 28, even if that is forgotten from time to time. But in times of distress, we wonder if God will take up our plight, if God even sees us. I remember an old title for a Judy Bloom book, which title are you, their God, it's me, Margaret. That's the question we ask. Are you their God? It's me, Jimmy. The good news that we hear in verses 28 through 31 is that God does see us. That God does hear us. We know this because of the promise of renewed strength from the weary. God sees our weariness. He sees our frailty and our weakness. He sees our exhaustion. And as we may suspect, the creator-sustainer offers such grace to a people who have grown faint. The promise of a new exodus requires a creative act of God. It requires a new creation, we might say. The people in Isaiah's day were being brought to a new city. The city they left was in smoldering ruins. God was wanting to do a new thing. And so all the creative language throughout Isaiah. The exodus language taking them from that place of foreignness in that distant land and bringing them back home. Breathing new life into tired bodies is what's required, and that's what God promises in these verses for their bodies and for our bodies for the journey ahead. The promise is rooted in the nature and character of God. At the same time, God's people in every generation are called to assume a posture that anticipates the promise. And that posture is described in verse 31. It's the posture of waiting. I've been reading a lot of books that involve an elephant named Gerald and a pig named Piggy. And oftentimes people ask what are the pastors are reading. I'm reading Gerald and Piggy books. Gerald's about as clear on this point as anyone when he observes, waiting isn't easy. When you're a kid, it's probably the worst word that you can hear. I remember at one point my twin brother and I were over at a friend's house and uh, we were hanging out. I don't remember what we were playing during that day, but we were, we were fairly young and we could overhear his mom talking to him when he asked her if he could have some of his leftover birthday cake. And she said, after your friends have gone home, you can, you can have some cake. And he walked out of the kitchen. Again, we could hear him the entire time. He walked around the, the corner of the, the wall and he looked at us and he said, leave! <laughs> Like I said, waiting's not easy. It's probably the worst thing that a kid can hear. But wait here in our text isn't just about killing time until something different happens. That's not what wait means here in this, in this text. Rather, it's the idea of hoping in, the idea of having eager expectation for what God will do. Eager expectation that God will take action in light of who God is and how God has acted in the past. It's waiting for that trusting, expecting. And as we trust here, we're trusting that the God of creation is still at work. That's what the people would have been trusting at this moment, what they're being called to wait upon. That God is still working in history, and God is working in the present, creating history. God is making all things new. 
It's awaiting that trust that the God of the Exodus is still leading people out of bondage and exile. That God is leading them through the wilderness into that place of promise. It's a trusting that God, who is completely and totally sufficient in and of God's self, yet still exemplifies servanthood on behalf of even the smallest of creation. You'll recall that humanity is referred to as grasshoppers in verse 22 in comparison to the, vast, the vastness of God. That the same God will take action on behalf of a weary people. It's trusting that that will happen. That the strong God gives strength to the weak. Those who wait, those who hope, who eagerly expect, won't be disappointed in the end, is what the prophet concludes. It sounds a bit like faith. These ones won't be disappointed in the end as God readies them now for what is promised ahead. These ones in Isaiah's day, these ones of us today. So what do we do with all that? Well, let me conclude with, with this. I don't know what the future holds for us. I don't. None of us do. Certainly, I don't know what the near future holds. For nearly a year, we have been under the thumb of a pandemic that has ravaged the world, has brought countries and economies to their knees. And though we hear reports of progress, we still find ourselves not knowing when things might change for us, when exactly that will happen. That's quite a weight to carry, quite a burden to shoulder. For others, the future this morning is cloudy and unknown for other reasons. You might call these compounding reasons. They hold the pandemic, sure enough, but they experience the loss of a loved one in recent days. They may have lost their employment over this period of time. The places that were once familiar to them had now grown distant and further in the past. Your church, for instance, your school, your neighborhood, maybe your family, maybe your coworkers in the office. The call here is to wait upon the Lord amidst all of these deflating challenges, of all these places that draw us away and pull us into exile. We're to wait upon the Lord. God is still at work and is doing a new thing in our lives. The one who is creator, the one who is the God of the Exodus, is renewing us so that we might make the journey into what is promised in the near future, what is promised in the distant future, and what is promised for us even now in the present. Deuteronomy 17, 16 draws a stark line here for us to hear this morning. The tail end of that passage, it says, you must never return that way again. And the reference is to Egypt. You remember that the story of the Exodus that the people, when they were in the wilderness, there was some desire to return back to Egypt, to go back the way they had come, to go back to certainty. There's a sense of nostalgia. Even though they were in bondage in Egypt, they still want to go back because they were afraid of what the future held for them. Those who wait upon the Lord embrace the uncertainty of the moment. There's a rabbi named Matthew Berkowitz who wrote an article called Never Return to Egypt, and I think his uh, subtitle of the article is quite telling. 
resisting the temptation to return geographically or psychologically to the site of our bondage. We've learned a lot over the last year. We've learned a lot about ourselves as a people and as a nation. And I think here as we look at Isaiah chapter 40, and again as we conclude here, I think it's good for us to be reminded of the lessons that we have learned, the things that we have seen, so that we might not return, but rather that we continue to wait upon the Lord. You know, it's during this season that we have observed that public discourse has turned into public discord for us as a nation, and not just as a nation, for us in our own community. We've come to the recognition at some level and the realization that the sins of the past are still existing in the present. We see that with racism in our nation, that we continue to contend with that gross sin. We've come to discover in the midst of this pandemic and in this struggle the absolute inequality that exists between the rich and the poor in our nation. We've come to see that whole communities of people that don't have access to health care or do not have the resources, the jobs, the ways to get out of their own exile has led to higher and disproportionate numbers of their death because of COVID-19. We've come to recognize in the midst of this challenging year a disconnection that has existed for some time between ourselves and our neighbors. We've come to recognize the poverty of our own relationships, our own ability to create friendships with one another, the distance that technology has created for us, that we have become more attached to our smartphones and less attached to our sisters and brothers. But we're entering a new season. We have the promise before us that relief is coming. But as we enter in a new season, we also enter into a new land. And God, who is the God of Exodus, is also the God of creation. God is leading us. We need to wait upon the Lord. Not to be anxious or afraid, but rather to be renewed and to live into that new place that God would have for all of us. May it be so for us in the days ahead and forever. Amen. Friends, let us pray, pray together. Lord, once more as we come to you uh, here in worship and prayer, we set our lives before you. We ask, Lord, that we know that you call us to live lives of trusting obedience. But we have great difficulty in the obedience part and perhaps even more difficulty in the trusting part. Lord, I pray today that you would help us as your people. Help us to live as those who believe, who trust, who've been called uh, to live faithful lives with full recognition that we only do that by your grace. Thank you, Lord, that the first word of this important chapter is comfort, that you provide comfort to your people. May you do so today in our hearts as we honor and as we serve you with our lives. 